You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. And so during the next several weeks, as we study through the book of Galatians, and I preach three messages a week on the book of Galatians, the theme is free indeed how to employ and enjoy your freedom in Christ. Free indeed how to employ and enjoy your freedom in Christ. And in a few moments, I'll uh, have some more to say about that specific topic. But right now, if you will, please stand with me. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1 again. And I'm going to read down through verse 5. Paul, an apostle, and by the way, we noted there that it's important for every pastor to be clear in his calling. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me, every pastor ought to be consistent, we noted it with his companions, unto the churches of Galatia. We noted that the pastor ought to, it just ought to be obvious to people that he is concerned for the church. Now notice the text for this morning. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now this morning, the title of the message is Establishing Your Life's Point of Reference. Establishing Your Life's Point of of reference. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow before you, we realize that the great intention of our gathering here this morning is to worship you, to praise you, to thank you for sending your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who by his death paid for our sins and with his life saves us. And Father, I pray that this morning, as we stand on the brink of this book of Galatians, that you would kindle within us an excitement about how we can employ and enjoy the freedom which we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, our greatest prayer is that your Holy Spirit would empower these words and that you would breathe life to us through them, Heavenly Father. Bring conviction. And Father, I pray this morning that you would move each of us to points of decision all morning long, and we would decide to agree with you. And Father, I pray at invitation time you would bring to this altar each person whose heart's desire is to be set free in Christ, to receive forgiveness and cleansing of sin, and abundant and eternal life. And Heavenly Father, I pray, trusting that you will move among us, for we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Would you be seated, please? Not long ago, several of us got off of a bus near the city of Jericho, just a little bit west of the city of Jericho, up in some mountains. 
And we stood looking down, first of all, on a beautiful spring that was just coursing down the hillside. And then we looked across that great divide, that chasm which plummeted hundreds of feet downward. And then back up on the other side to a mountain that seemed to rise before us, larger and larger it loomed. About halfway up the side of that mountain, over a period of years, some religionists have built a monastery. Many of the people who live in that monastery are secluded. There are others who come in and go out. There are many visitors, they tell me, people who walk the pathway that leads up to that monastery. But as you look at the monastery itself, the thing that strikes you about it is that there is no symmetry to it. It looks almost like a centipede that is precariously creeping along the side of that mountain. There's not any one room that seems to be the size of any other room. There's not any roof over any room that is the same height or distance from the roof that is next to it. If this building has a point of reference at all, it is just to the mountain which is before it, and it just clings there on the side of that mountain, crawling along, it looks like it is. When we got back in the bus, I thought to myself, I wonder <clears throat> what it would be like to try to build a house without a point of reference. You know, when your house was built, the, the carpenters came out and the surveyors were there and they had their surveyors transit and they established a point of reference and your carpenter made sure that the house was built always referring back to that specific point and using his plumb line and using his transit and using that carpenter's level which he has and using the square which is in his hand that carpenter time and time again went back to that specific point of reference and from that point of reference, that house was built in which you live with its symmetry and with its beauty and with its conformity. And, and it all happened because the carpenter was willing time and again to go back to that point of reference. Can you imagine what a house would look like if there was no point of reference? The truth of the matter is, when we were serving on the mission field in Africa, I saw dwellings like that. People just went out and they found a place where they wanted to build a house and they started building it. And they uh, just built as high as they thought it ought to be and they'd get over the other side and sort of eyeball and build another wall and they might build a little porch out here. And, and when you looked at it, it, it was almost uh, uh, ludicrous as you looked at it. There was no symmetry, no conformity. And one thing for sure, it certainly did not take the advantage of the strength that could come from the symmetry and conformity. And many times those houses would fall very quickly. Can you imagine building a house without a point of reference? Or can you imagine trying to sail from one country's shores all the way across the ocean, let's say the, the Pacific Ocean, without ever having a point of reference, with no compass in your boat and no way to look at the stars in the sky above or to ever see in which direction the sun was setting or the sun would rise the next morning, no point of reference. You were just simply staring as you sat there on the prow of the boat and you simply stared at the ocean and you kept thinking to yourself, you know, I wonder where I've been. 
and you turn around and go to the bow of the boat and you say, I wonder where I'm going. And you just look at the ocean and try to steer that craft by looking at the ocean. I doubt that you would get anywhere near where you wanted to be. If there was no point of reference, you had no way of knowing which direction you were going. One of the most disturbing things about our contemporary society is that when we set aside the Word of God as a point of reference, and when we say there are no absolutes, and that's the theme song currently, there are no absolutes. Nothing is absolutely right. Nothing is absolutely wrong. We have set aside all points of reference. And certainly we're not headed where we'd like to be. And sadly, I wonder if there may be people here this morning either watching on the television, listening on the radio, or in this very room, who would say, Brother Tom, I have some vague sense of notion about where I'd like to go with my life and what I'd like to do and how I'd like to accomplish it. But in your life, there may be no absolutes. There may be no point of reference so that you can tell where you've been and you can tell what kind of progress you are making and you can tell where you are headed and whether you are headed toward the objective that you desire. No point of reference. The saddest thing that could happen to you or to me would be to have no spiritual point of reference. No way of knowing what was really God's will for our life. No way of knowing from one day to the next whether we were really doing what God wanted us to do and living the way God wanted us to live. No point of reference in our life. Well, this morning I want to speak to you on this subject, establishing your life's point of reference. I noticed this morning that already our college community is beginning to trickle back to school and make their way back into our services, although the great influx will be this next Sunday as the campuses become crowded with students for the new year. And I cannot think of anything more important for a high school or for a college, a university student, than to have it fixed in your heart that there is a specific point of reference and you look to it from time time again to see where you're going and whether you are living according to God's plan for your life, establishing your life's point of reference. Now, you have your Bible open to the book of Galatians because you see... The book of Galatians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the churches in what we would call Asia Minor or Galatia, churches which the Apostle Paul established maybe as early as his first missionary journey, perhaps only on his second. And churches for whom the Apostle Paul had great and grave concern because the members of those churches, the believers, young and old alike, had strayed from their point of reference. And you're going to hear the Apostle Paul with a tear in his eye and agony in his voice saying, for instance, how is it that you have strayed? How could it be that so soon you have fallen away from that gospel? How is it that now you're preaching a, another gospel, a gospel that is totally different than the gospel by which you receive forgiveness and cleansing of sin and by which you receive eternal life. Now, let me explain to you what was in the heart of the Galatians. 
If you would take the time to study the culture in that region, you will discover that in all likelihood, the Galatians were some of the most unusually perverted and twisted people. In their society, there did not seem to be any definite idea of rights and wrongs. It was sort of every man for his own self. And the result was that life was filled with rebellion for them and life was filled with sin. They tried all kinds of different religions. And there were people in that area as well who said, well, the key is, is in rules and in keeping of the law. And so even the Jewish faith, when it found a stronghold in that area, became very strong. Now, what happens, and I, and I hope you'll understand the dynamic of this. Have you ever known of someone who has come to know the Lord Jesus and then later on in life became very rigid and hard and to use what I believe is a proper word to use, very legalistic in their approach to everything, unbending, inflexible, intolerant, and so hard that perhaps you found it very difficult to be around them, very difficult to appreciate their attitude? What kind of a person, what spawns that kind of a personality? A personality that seems to have lost balance in life and seems to have moved back into a, a bondage of a sort. Do you know people who live like that, who live life more aware of what they're afraid of than what they enjoy? more keenly interested in what they're trying to keep from doing than, than giving themselves to what they want to do because of the grace and the glory of God within them? Do you know anybody like that? Who is more interested in the do-nots than in the do's, the negatives than in the positives? What would spawn that kind of a person? Well, if we look in the, the experience of the Galatians, here's what you would find. Here were people over here who are trying to fight against the evils of their society by a, an application of the rigid laws of God. And they discovered, as a matter of fact, what the laws were given us to point out, that there is a sin nature in man which makes it absolutely impossible to keep all of the laws of God. You just can't do it. The laws are there. It is possible to keep them, but there is a rebel. There is a, an unleashed animal within our heart. It's called the nature of sin. And that animal of sin within us is incited by the law, just like a, a cow is incited by a fence, perfectly content in the middle of a pasture till you put up the barrier. The cow walks right straight to the fence and sticks his head, her head through and tries to get the grass that's in the bar ditch. Or the leopard is perfectly happy reclining out there in the African veldt until you put a cage or a net around it, then it grows absolutely wild. And one of the purposes of the law was to point out that there is this raging nature of sin within us. To those people, the apostle Paul had come with a wonderful message, and that is that you are not saved by keeping the law. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That message was so refreshing. That message was so wonderful to them. And so these people in those churches in Galatia received Christ by faith as their Savior. They came to experience what it was to know his forgiveness, his cleansing of sin as they repented of sin. 
But you know, when you have seen how it is on the other side and when you have been particularly steeped in that and the pendulum in your life begins to swing, it comes down here, you receive the grace of God. Why, when Christ saves you and you love God, you want to move as far away as you can from what it was that you experienced and that pendulum continues to swing and if you're not careful, you will begin to develop on the other side something that is almost like what you experienced before. This is what the Galatians had done. That pendulum had swung through the grace of God in their life and moved over to a new kind of legalism. Now they had a new approach to God, but they began to look back and they said, you know something? There's nothing wrong with those laws, and indeed there was nothing wrong with those laws. Why, we probably were rebellious. We probably were living in sin because we just didn't keep those laws rigidly enough. Now we're saved. We're really going to keep those laws rigidly. And so all of a sudden, they begin to introduce a new kind of a gospel. And what was it? Well, you're saved by faith in Jesus. You're saved by the grace of God, but you cannot really be saved unless you are actually keeping all these laws. And they develop a new type of religiosity, which they approached with such a zeal that by the time the Apostle Paul was writing the Christians in Galatia, while they were actually saying that no man could become a believer in Christ unless he had been circumcised as a Jew. As a matter of fact, they made that a matter of personal testimony. That had to happen. You had to keep the law. You had to be a good Jew in order to be a good Christian. Now, I'm, I'm saying this for two reasons. First of all, you be easy on your friend. If your friend in seeking to run from a horrible lifestyle, having come to know Jesus, seems to go beyond the kind of dedication and commitment which you need in your life. Be easy on that person for two reasons. First of all, you may need a challenge to your commitment. Secondly, understand what is in the heart of that friend. That friend with that new appreciation for Christ is seeking as best he can. Now, the way is not by keeping a bunch of laws, rigid rules, and saying, this is the way it ought to be, and this is the way it ought to be, and this is the way it ought to be, and here are all the principles, and this is it, and you can't really be saved unless this is happening. But just understand that your friend is seeking to live out his life, her life, as best he can with the grace of God. Now, on the other hand, you need to understand as you live your life that you have something to learn from him, just as he has something to learn from you. And so the Apostle Paul said to the Christians in Galatia whose pendulum had swung way over here to legalism, a proper word, in fact, there are words in the Scripture that we could actually interpret. In fact, religion means a return to legalism, a return to the law, religion. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to them, look, I'm challenged by you, but I love you so much, I, I need you to understand what it means to be free in Christ. And so the book of Galatians is written to help them to understand what it means to be free in Christ. And that is why I'm calling this whole series How to Employ and Enjoy. The Christian life is meant to be enjoyed. You're not meant to spend your whole life 
in fear of all the things that might happen. You understand, you know the devil, you flee from the devil, you respect his power, but you understand the great power of Christ within you, how to employ and enjoy your freedom in Christ. Now, the only way you can do that is to have a point of reference in your life. And the Apostle Paul says the point of reference in the life of every believer, in the life of every believer, should be the cross. The cross. The introduction here to the book of Galatians is far different than the introduction to most of the other letters the Apostle Paul writes because when he speaks, for instance, in verse 3, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, if you look in most of his letters, that is the end of his greeting. But you see, because there is within the heart of the Apostle Paul boiling this issue of Galatianism, he cannot even mention the name of Jesus without reminding them what Jesus did on the cross who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the point of reference for your life, young man, young lady, mom, dad, grandparent, whoever you are, the point of reference for your life should be the cross. Anytime you want to know how you ought to be living, anytime you want to know what Christ has done for you, then you look back to the cross. That is the point of reference. It is the plumb line, it is the transit, it is the level, it is the spot that reveals to you all that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross does. And so with that in mind, I want to show you five characteristics of the cross. Five characteristics of the cross, which should be your point of reference. First of all, notice the act of the cross. The act of the cross. Verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. Now that is an amazing thing when you realize that Jesus took upon himself the responsibility for dying so that he could save us. He gave himself. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good man one might even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, here's something that I want you to understand. Our tendency when we reflect on the cross is to focus generally and mostly on what we did to Jesus. The cruelties of the cross, the agonies of the cross, and that should not be minimized. The horrible experience of the crucifixion, the suffering and the pain Jesus experienced on the cross. And for most of us, when we think of the cross, our focus is upon the cross, and we think about cruel man's inhuman or inhumanity to Jesus. 
But what I want you to see and what I think the Apostle Paul wants all of us to see is that the other side of the cross, not the cross itself, but on Christ who is on the cross. For you see, he gave himself. Not one finger could have been lifted against Jesus apart from his choice to give himself. He gave himself. There were times when Jesus said, mine hour is not yet come, and no one could put a finger on him. And there came a time when Jesus said, my hour has come, and because he gave himself for us, he allowed them to crucify him. Jesus came to die. He gave himself for us. Perhaps you can think of it in this fashion. Let's suppose that you're standing on the bank of a raging river. The water is just seething and boiling, and you know that not, not 20 yards past you, there is a precipice over which that water plummets into a waterfall that descends hundreds of feet and crashes on the sharp rocks below, and you're standing there. And let's suppose that suddenly you begin to hear screams in the background and, and the form of a little child, a little two- or three-year-old child comes floating by and the child is thrashing about and you know it is certain death for that child. And so, without thinking, you dive into that water, rescue that child, and even as you're throwing that child out of that water, you plummet over the waterfall and your body is broken on the rocks below. They write about the news headlines. and They have pictures. And as the reporters that want to do, they emphasize your bravery. But they emphasize even more the agony as your body slipped over that waterfall and was torn to pieces by the raging waters on the rocks below. And you are a hero because of saving the life of that child. And it just entered your heart. There's an innocent victim. I've got to save that child's life. Now, chances are you, didn't, you, you gave more thought to the child than you did to the consequences of going over the waterfall. But let's, let's just think just a moment. Suppose you were standing there and the form that came swiftly moving through the water was not some innocent two- or three-year-old child, but suppose it was a murderer, a condemned murderer. As a matter of fact, suppose it was not just any murderer. Suppose it was the condemned and sentenced to die murderer of one of your own dear family members. And here is that form racing toward the edge. How inclined are you going to be to rescue that person? You might say to yourself, a child, yes. The murderer of one of my own family members? You mean to give my life? To crash on the rocks below? It would be his life for mine, mine for his. He's already taken a life. He's going to die anyway. I don't think I'll do it. Well, I want you to know that that is close, not entirely, but close to what Jesus did for you. You are a sinner. You are condemned to die. 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You are going to die. You are headed to death. And Jesus decided that even though you are a murderer because it will be his life for yours, he's going to save you. He gave himself. And by the way, he gave himself knowing every bit of the pain that he would experience on the cross before his death for you. The act of the cross. Notice secondly, the aim of the cross. He did this with a purpose in mind that he might deliver us from this present evil world. That was his whole purpose, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Why? That he might deliver us from this present evil world. Now, the word deliver here has the sense of rescue, just as I've portrayed for you, the sense of rescue. But what I want you to see is this phrase, this present evil world, because it means more than just this place where you live. It means literally this spinning orb of evil in which you have found yourself. He is reaching in, rolling up his sleeves, and reaching in and rescuing you from this spinning web of evil, this present evil orbit in which you have found yourself, is what this means. So you might say, well, he did this because he wanted to, at one time, save all the people on the face of the earth. He did this so he could rescue you from this spinning orb of evil. What bothers you? What's in your life? What's got you captive? Those besetting sins in your life, those habits in your life, those thoughts that are out of control in your life, those attitudes in your life, those lusts which you can't seem to satisfy in your life, the evil in your life. Jesus died with this aim, this purpose in mind, that he might reach in and rescue you from that spinning orb of evil. That was his purpose in coming. We've all watched westerns. Maybe the last time you watched them, they were still in black and white, but you've watched a western. You've watched western. You know what happens? Why? First part of that story, the town is, why wow, they're so distressed. Somebody is in charge. Evil is in control. And then into the town rides the gunslinger. And for a while, you don't know whether he's good or bad. But after a while, people begin to realize this gunslinger is going to deal with the evil that's in town. He's going to rescue us. It's not very long before the scene is played out on the street below and the gunslinger goes riding off, lonesome cowboy that he is, into the sunset. Well, I want to tell you something. Jesus is no gunslinger and he's no lonesome cowboy. But I'll tell you what, this world like that town is in a heap of trouble. And Jesus came with this specific purpose in mind. He came to this earth to rescue you 
from what it is that is binding you, enslaving you, chaining you, destroying you. He realizes that you are caught in a whirlpool, a whirling vortex that is going to suck you down into a funnel of eternal death, and Jesus plunged into it, and he gave himself that he might rescue you from this present evil orbit in which you found yourself. That's the aim of the cross. Look quickly at the appointment of the cross. The appointment of the cross. Did you know that there are people, honestly, there are people who believe that God was so upset because of what happened to this world that, that he said, man, I've just made a big mess over this thing. And these people are going to die and they're going to go to hell and I've got to do something about this. And so God thought up Jesus and he's trying Jesus as one way perhaps to save some people. Now look up here. Jesus is not a second thought of God's. Jesus is not a notion on God's part. Jesus is not an attempt on God's part. Jesus coming to this earth was premeditated in the heart of God before the very first atom of this earth was brought into being. Notice what he says here again in verse 4. He delivered us from this present evil world according to the will of God the Father. It is not a world out of control. It is a world in which sinful men have chosen their control for their lives. But God knows and God saw sin before there was ever the sinner. And Jesus' coming is an act premeditated in the heart of a sovereign God according to the will of God the Father. It's not just an impulse, not just a, a notion. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 tell us that, that as it is appointed and a man wants to die and after that the judgment, so Christ was once offered so what? So as that appointment you have to die, so Christ had an appointment also to die for you. He was the lamb, the Bible tells us, slain when? Before the foundation of the world. Not an afterthought on God's part, not an impulse. This was something that God knew before the world was created. Now, what I want you to see is this. That means that God knew you would be a sinner. That means that God knew that the only way that you would escape the ravages of sin and gain eternal life would be to have a Savior. And that means that God so loved you. Now listen to this. God so loved you in his heart that he made provision for you to spend your forever with him before there was even a you. The first thing he did was love you. And then he created you, and then you sinned, and then he came for you, but he loved you first. It is according to the will of God the Father. This was not some cruel grinding and meshing of the gears of history, crushing out the life of a poor victim who had no ability to control the affairs of history. This is God moving in history. He started the gears. He made them go to work. This happened according to God's plan. It was God's time the appointment of the cross. Look at the accomplishment of the cross. What did the cross get for you? What was purchased on the cross? Verse 3, 
grace and peace. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what he wants for you is to experience grace and peace. By the way, you can't have grace without peace. By the way, peace always comes with grace. Go down to grocery store. This is very interesting. Have you ever noticed every once in a while you, you really hit the jackpot at a grocery store? I don't know if that's good theology, but every once in a while it really, it really happens. You know, somebody has a special for something, and it's a total surprise. You, you, you get it, and you didn't even know you were going to get it. Bought a, uh, uh, some, some lighter uh, fluid for charcoal one time, and, and uh, you know, I, I was amazed at how expensive this stuff was, but I had to have it, and you know how it is. You, you got to at least get $50, $60 worth of stuff together to cook that 10-cent hamburger. And so <clears throat> I was down there, and I had this, uh, I was getting this lighter fluid for charcoal. And, uh, well, I mean, it was, it was a neat can, too. That was one of the things that really impressed me. It was a great job of marketing. And I, I purchased that and, and went up and got ready to pay for it. <clears throat> and uh, over to the right, there was a big pile of charcoal, uh, sacks of charcoal, not big ones, just little 25-pound sacks of char charcoal. And she said, take one of those sacks of charcoal. I said, well, I already got some charcoal. She said, no. She said, that comes with the, with the charcoal fluid. I said, well, I don't want to buy that. She said, no, this is special we're running. If you buy a can of this stuff, we're going to give you a 25-pound sack of charcoal. It's just a special that the company's got going. Now, I want to tell you something, friend. God has got a special for you. If you will ever experience his grace, he says, this is, goes with it, peace. You get my peace, too. You have it right there. Well, no, I just, I didn't, I didn't, I just wanted to get saved. That's okay, you're going to get peace anyway. Well, I mean, I was just trusting Jesus so I'd go to heaven. Good, you'll be peaceful while you're going. Well, what if I don't want it? Well, it's just out here, it's yours, it's got your name on it. You got grace, you get peace. You can't have peace without grace, but when you get grace, you have peace. Not the peace necessarily of an undisturbed calm, but the peace which passes all understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Grace, God will give you the ability to do. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God makes it by grace, and then he even gives you the faith so that you can believe in him and experience his grace, and before it's all over, you have peace like a river in your heart. Some of you here this morning, you're so troubled, you're so upset, you can have peace if you experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, I want you to notice the acclamation of the cross, the acclamation of the cross. <clears throat> One thing I like about the Apostle Paul is that he can't talk about Jesus without erupting into praise. I, I don't know how this fits in to, to your particular kind of theological mindset, but I believe, and I, and, and I believe this without a shadow of a doubt, that people who do not know the experience and enjoy the expression of praise are people who are more inclined toward a works-oriented salvation. Why should they praise Jesus? 
Because after all, they're getting saved by their works. They're keeping all these laws, they're doing all these things, and God is so fortunate to have them because they're trying so hard. Let me tell you something. Not one amount of your effort is going to get you into heaven. You say, but I am trying so hard to keep this. This is sure to make God, you know, I mean, he's, he doesn't have to have as much grace for me. It takes Jesus total death on the cross for you just like it would Adolf Hitler if he chose to trust in Jesus. You say, but I'm not as bad. Hey, the issue is not how bad you are. The point is you're a sinner. I am a sinner. The wages of sin is death. It took his death for me and for you. And when you focus on the fact, well, I'm trying real hard, I'm doing my best, I have all these rules, God must be thrilled, I am so disciplined, this is so great, I am so much better than everybody else, you are not going to be a person who knows and enjoys and loves to praise God because your focus is on you and your effort and your attempt to make God happy. When you see that it is none of you and all of him, when you see that if you're going to go to heaven, it is because of what Jesus and Jesus alone did in your life, you'll begin to understand what it is to praise God so much so that the Apostle Paul, who, listen, friends, tried it the other way. He did better at it than you. He even got born right. He was rigid in his application of the laws of God. He said, I have tried it that way. It will not work that way. It must be Jesus, and he can hardly say the name of Jesus without saying, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He cannot take that praise out of his heart. Why? Because his focus is upon him who did it rather than him who tried it. The acclamation of the cross. If you struggle... You have difficulties really getting excited about being saved is probably because you think you had something to do with it. If you can't really enjoy praising the Lord, if you can't just cut loose, I mean, there's some things, friends, that, that, that so rejoice the heart of the Lord, I think if you keep them inside you, they'll do damage to you. You just have to say some things about the Lord Jesus, Amen. I mean, you have to know that he who is king of kings and lord of lords before you were created said, I will go to that earth. I will live like them. I will go suffer on that cross. I will descend into hell. I will take captivity captive. I will take them to heaven one day. Praise God for that. Praise the Lord. The acclamation of the cross. Dear friend, if you've got any other point of reference, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You're building a house that is not going to stand this test of eternal judgment of God because the cross of Jesus is to be your point of reference. Establish it this morning. In a few moments we're going to stand. Our counselors are going to be here at the front. We're going to sing that hymn of invitation this morning, the old rugged cross. In a few moments when we stand together and we begin singing the old rugged cross, I'm going to ask you to make your way to this altar. If you want to just simply come down here and thank God for the cross, thank him that you got saved, you come do that. If you want to come, take the hand of a counter and say, I'd love to be able to say that, but I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I have eternal life. I don't know if my sins are forgiven. Friend, you come say that to one of these counters. I want to know. 
I want to know Jesus. I want to receive him. You say that to a counter. If you need to join this church, whether you're here by yourself, a college student returning, a family, a couple, you may be a family of one, single, you want to be a part of this family, well, dear friend, I would urge you on the very first step to make your way forward. If you've trusted Christ, you need to follow him in baptism, come tell a counselor here at the front. Glory in the cross. Make it your point of reference. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand and sing. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit now will move in power at this invitation time, bringing people to this altar to give glory to you. For the fact that you sent your Son our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who gave himself on the cross to deliver us from this present evil generation according to the will of God the Father so we might have grace and peace. To him be glory forever and ever. Oh, Father, do your work in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name.